This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. You have to excuse my festival throat, which is a little on the croaky side this evening. Can you hear okay, right? Yep. <coughs> excuse me. Uh, my name is Jenny Niven. I'm Head of Literature at Creative Scotland. Um, but I had the singular pleasure this year of over the winter months, well, Nick um, Barley, the director of this festival, was off on sabbatical. Um, I filled his considerably larger shoes um, and did his job uh, for a few months over winter. And so was absolutely thrilled uh, when it looked as if there might be the possibility of inviting these two wonderful writers to the stage this evening. On my far left, we have Laird Hunt and the inimitable Colson Whitehead. Please give them a very warm, warm welcome. Um, as this session sold out in about two minutes flat, I know that you all have a lot to say, so I will certainly give you the chance to um, do that towards the end of the session. But what I propose we do is that I'll introduce both of our writers this evening and ask them both to read um, a passage from their novels. And then we'll do a bit of just individual discussion with each writer in turn, a little bit of um, looking at what brings the two novels um, together, and then we'll turn it over to you guys um, to ask questions yourselves. Um, so first up, Colson Whitehead is an American novelist. He's the author of six novels, including his debut work, the 1999 novel The Intuitionist. Fast forwarding through an amazing range of styles and genres and uh, subject matter through to this year's, the under, or last year in the US, The Underground Railroad, for which you probably don't need too much introduction other than to say it won just about every prize possible, including the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and the National Book Award for Fiction. Um, He's published two books of non-fiction. He'd received a MacArthur Fellowship Genius Grant, no less. Um, and even Barack Obama chose uh, The Underground Railroad, here it is, um, as one of his five books of 2016. So there's plenty um, of accolades in there. Um, Laird Hunt is similarly, similarly storied. He has seven novels to his name, spanning a range of genre and form, including Kind One, which was shortlisted for the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, and Never Home, um, which was lauded by the likes of Paul Oster, who you might have seen around the festival these last weeks, and which is currently being adapted for screen. Um, he also translates from French. He's a tutor. He's written, uh, uh, um, he's written for just about all of the interesting literary quarterlies and journals in the States, including McSweeney's The Believer, Book, Format, Book Forum, you name it. So we have two, we're going to mostly be looking this evening at Laird Hunt's The Evening Road, and both books are so full of politics and of amazing characters and huge stories and huge narratives that I don't think we're even really going to scratch the surface. Um, but I think we're in for a really interesting evening. So please give them another warm welcome before we start. Great. <laughs> Liz, could we start with you? Would you just read us yeah, a sure. little bit of um, the evening road to just get us into the, the spirit of things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's great to be here. It's good to see all of you. Uh, I'm going to dive right into the middle of this book. Um, and for those of you who don't know, it, it takes place in and around an infamous event in um, Indiana history. I'm from Indiana, which is in the middle of the United States. Um, and on August 7th, August 7th 1930, um, 
a, a couple of young men were lynched in the town of Marion, Indiana. Uh, and I have written a novel that um, moves in and around those events, those, uh, that, those actual events, facts, etc. And there are two characters. One, the uh, uh, first character who is going towards this event, who wants to attend it. 10,000 people poured in from the surround, surrounding countryside to uh, attend this. Um, and then the second half of the novel um, is narrated by uh, someone who wants at all costs to get out of town and finds it difficult to do so. And so I'm going to read uh, from that second part uh, and a description of what this young woman encounters on the courthouse square that night. Um, so this is a fictionalized version of an ac actual event. Leander liked to talk about the sun and its doings. He had a theory for every minute of the night and day. He had about half the whole world in his head, and he would blow gusts of it out into my ear when we took a walk. He would say, stop, now listen, do you hear that? You think that's the wind in the maples, but it's not the wind. It's the universe twitching, which is what the universe was doing down at the courthouse square. And before I knew much more than half of what was happening, I turned onto Lincoln and got snarled up in the middle of it. Why that turn? I don't know. No Leander, but corn silks by the hundreds and more corn silks stepping their way in, like they had decided to hold the county fair at the courthouse but kill people instead of showing cows and pigs. None of it was what I had expected. None of it was what I had thought, which was clan hats and clan robes and clan torches and maybe a few ugly corn silk men with bleeding, chaw-filled mouths. No, this was corn silks drinking out of bottles in the bright sunshine. Corn silk families reclining in the shade of the killing trees. There were women and babies and little boys juggling apples and bulldogs slobbering and biting at their own tails. This wasn't something away on over there like a picture show. This was all around. This was right next to me. I drove slow because that's all I could do and went past a little girl in a green dress who was draped like limp lettuce over her father's shoulder. She gave me a sleepy smile, lifted her little hand and said hi in a soft voice as I went by and I rolled up my window. There was a mailman standing next to her father holding a picture of the governor and a tall gal in a fancy blue dress next to him. I saw people I recognized everywhere I looked. A man from the hardware store where Uncle D bought supplies. A teenage girl who sold papers at the interurban station. A boy who was always on his bright orange bicycle and who was on it today. This is about to get ugly, I said. So this section also takes place in Indiana. It's a made-up Indiana. Uh, our protagonist, Cora, has found herself in a section, I guess in my notes I had for many years, just called the Black Utopia section. And she's on a free uh, farm in Indiana owned by a man named Valentine, uh, a self-sufficient community next door to the white community. Uh, and every Saturday they have music and sometimes debate the issues of the day. So in this section, there's a conservative voice named Mingo who's talking about what's next for the, uh, the black race and a progressive voice, uh, a, a guy named Lander. And this is Lander's talk to the assembled people of Valentine Farm. Brother Mingo made some good points, Lander said. We can't save everyone. But that doesn't mean we can't try. Sometimes a useful delusion is better than a useless truth. Here's one delusion that we can escape slavery, we can't. Its scars will never fade. 
When you saw your mother sold off, your father beaten, your sister abused by some boss or master, did you ever think that you'd sit here today without chains, without the yoke, among a new family? Everything you ever knew told you that freedom was a trick. Yet here you are, still we run, tracking by the good full moon to sanctuary. Valentine Farm, this place is a delusion. Who told you the Negro deserved a place of refuge? Who told you that you had that right? Every, fa every minute of your life suffering has argued otherwise. By every fact of history, it can exist. This place must be delusion too, yet here we are. And America too is a delusion, the grandest one of all. The white race believes, believes with all its heart, that it is their right to take the land, to kill Indians, make war, enslave their brothers. This nation shouldn't exist if there's any justice in the world, for its foundations are murder, theft, and cruelty. Yet here we are. I'm supposed to answer Mingo's call for gradual progress, for closing our doors to those in need. I'm supposed to answer those who think this place is too close to the grievous influence of slavery and that we should move west. I don't have an answer for you. I don't know what we should do. The word we. In some ways, the only thing we have in common is the color of our skin. Our ancestors came from all over the African continent. It's quite large. Brother Valentine has the maps of the world in his splendid library. You can look for yourself. They had different ways of subsistence, different customs, spoke a hundred different languages. And that great mixture was brought to America in the holds of slave ships. To the north, the south. The son, their sons and daughters picked tobacco, cultivated cotton, worked on the largest estates and the smallest farms. We are craftsmen and midwives and preachers and peddlers. Black hands built the White House, the seat of our nation's government. The word we. We're not one people, but many different people. How can one person speak for this great, beautiful race, which is not one race, but many, with a million desires and hopes and wishes for ourselves and our children? For we are Africans in America, something new in the history of the world, without models for what we will become. Color must suffice. It's brought us to this night, this discussion, and it will take us into the future. All I truly know is that we rise and fall as one, one colored family living next door to one white family. We may not know our way through the forest, but we can pick each other up when we fall, and we will arrive together. Thank you. Lots of questions for both of you about the stylistic choices of the novels, but just in terms of just kind of um, yes, setting out the context. Lear, can you start by just telling us this? Obviously, has its roots in a true story. What was it about this particular story that um, brought you to it? Sure. So um, I was I was driving in the car and listening to a t listening to the radio, um, not paying particular attention, and then a, a show came on that was uh, called. Strange Fruit Anniversary of a Lynching. Uh, and it was a look, it was the 70th, 70th anniversary of this event that took place, as I said before, in Marion, Indiana. Um, and this event um, uh, became widely known for a, for a couple particular reasons. One, there was a, a horrifying picture postcard that was taken that night. Um, and uh, the, the picture shows a group of grinning white people pointing at the tree where two young men have just been uh, murdered. 
and this was circulated nationally. And the, as, as this radio uh, show uh, described and told, um, a, uh, one of the, the, the symptoms, interesting symptoms of this was the song Strange Fruit that was made famous by um, Billie Holiday uh, came out of, through a series of events, came out of uh, that picture postcard um, and that circulation of, of this event. Um, and what struck me in particular was that uh, these were all events that had happened less than an hour from the family farm where I grew up. Uh, and I had never heard it mentioned, um, this event. So this is 1930, but I was living there in the 1980s. Um, and my grandmother and uh, many of the people around her were of an age to perhaps have been one of the 10,000. Um, I don't know at all that they went and, and rather suspect that my grandmother didn't. Um, but nonetheless, the fact that it was never brought up at home, it was never brought up in school, and mm. that made me really interested to want to go and take a look. So a, a series of investigations ensued. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Coulson, you said about this book um, in one of the interviews I read that you set out to write the book that scares you shitless. Is that? Sure. <laughs> I mean, um, I had the idea 17 years ago, and you know, the Underground Railroad is not a literal railroad. It was a human network that helped slaves escape from the, to the north. Uh, you might give someone a ride 100 miles, hand them off to someone else, give them money or shelter for a while. Um, uh, and I guess it comes from when a, a slave master woke up one day and one of his slaves was gone, and he said, it's as if she disappeared on, on an underground railroad. Um, so that became the metaphor for this, uh, for this network. And then when, when you're a kid, you first hear about it, you think it's a literal subway before your teacher explains it. I'm not the only person, a lot of people think that. <laughs> and so um, uh, 17 years ago, I was on my couch and came across a reference and thought, oh, wouldn't that be a weird idea for a book and uh, to make it real? And then I added that element where each state our protagonist goes through is a different state of American possibility, like Gulliver's Travels and Alternative America. And it seemed like a great idea, but I knew if I tried it back then, I would have fucked it up. I didn't feel I was a good enough writer. If I wrote some more books, I might be able to pull it off. If I was older and more mature, I might bring the wisdom of my years to the book. Um, so I kept putting it off. And then finally, about three years ago, I, I, I had been putting it off for so long that I had to write the book that scared me, the one I didn't know I could do. I had planned a novel plan that took place in Brooklyn, a guy having a midlife crisis. I, I, I knew I could do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, the same do the book you don't know you can do. But Probably a good rule. Compared to some of your other novels, the style is a little bit more, um, it's a little bit less ironic, it's a bit more straightforward in some sense. And, it, you know, the, the voice, the narrative voice is maybe less kind of stylistically adorned or, or something than some of the previous novels. How closely is that related to the subject matter? I think um, uh, my previous book was about the World Series of Poker, and for me it's a humor book, a lot of jokes, a lot of me in it. And so it seemed... But even something like Zone 1, you know there's a lot of kind of range in all of that. No, sure, yeah. But it just seemed I had a, I had a book that was very funny and it was very loose. And it seemed I could do a book that had like no jokes. There's no jokes in this book, really. Um, I had books that are very digressive in the past. Uh, you know, Sag Harbor, which I love, has three pages on TV dinners. And so there's <laughs> a digressive impulse in some of the work. Um, and it seemed... Uh, that wouldn't really serve the story. So I, I, I'm always like trying to figure out the narrative voice and, and the structure that serves the story. And it seemed this narrator and this uh, much more pared down language seemed to fit the story. Mm -hmm. yeah.
For you, Laird, the, there's a kind of the tone in your novel is it's really quite kind of there's a fable-like feeling, a kind of dream-like quality, kind of elegiac feeling to, to quite a lot of it. How does that sit? And it sits kind of really um, quite confrontingly almost with the violence and, and, and yeah, the violence of the subject matter. Why mm -hmm. would you approach it in that particular way? So, I mean, just, you know, very briefly in terms of context for this project. So this is the third novel in which I'm exploring American history and issues dealing with um, all aspects in, in, in uh, crucible moments, let's say, crucible issues in American history. So kind one which deals with, um, takes place during the antebellum period and deals with slavery. Um, Never Home, uh, which is set during the Civil War, uh, and then The Evening Road, which is set in 1930, as, as I've already mentioned. And in each of these novels, there is uh, a narrator or narrators who um, is recounting this years later, right? So there's that sense of an overview, a looking back at a life that informs all of these novels. Um, and thinking about having spent, I, I was, uh, uh, raised by this grandmother who I've already mentioned, who spent an awful lot of time talking about her early years, and especially the, the key moments um, as she saw them. And there was a lot of mixture of, of pure invention, um, of misremembering, of getting th things wrong, um, of racing into the, the, those gaps with imaginative leaps. Um, and so I think that that certainly informed this sense I had of throwing back uh, into the past. Um, but, you know, these are, these are dealing with very, as I've said, sort of crucible moments and thinking about um, how do we talk about those things? Mm. Um, and do we, right, do we go straight towards that Medusa um, or do we use the shield uh, to think about it? Um, and so there are different strategies that these narrators use. And one of them is they enter into a kind of fever dream and things do get strange. Um, and there is a fantastical element uh, and, but maybe that's also woven into some of the fabric of the way America has mistold its stories for many, many years. Huh. Did that impact? I mean, I, do, I want to resist drawing too many parallels between the two novels because they are so different. But did that kind of rewriting of history, did that have any bearing on your kind of alternative states? Well, you know, th no, there is some overlap with uh, Lair's grandmother um, uh, in terms of you know, the narrative voice for many years, you know, I had the story in the back of my mind, and each state uh, took place in different time periods. It was much more science fiction oriented. And then before I started writing, I went back to 100 Years of Solitude, which I read when I was a teenager. And uh, in the back of the book, there's a description of Garcia Marquez talking about how he came up with his brand of magical realism. And he says that he listened to his grandmother's stories, and she would mix in the fantastic and the real and tell the story with a brick face. And so he could never tell like, what was made up. Uh, <coughs> did the sheriff really fly off on wings or, or not? <laughs> and, uh, and, that's, and that's how he uh, came up with his, his form of fantasy. And it seemed, uh, when I was trying to find the right voice for the book, that mixing the fantastic parts and the realistic parts with a, with a brick face, a straight face, um, and turning the level of fantasy down from a spinal tappy in 11 to like a very mellow one could serve the book. And I think it, you know, yeah. Did, did, yeah, did definitely. So. But for both of you, we're not there just on a kind of emotional level. We're, there are not passages in these books that were so, so difficult to write. You know, when you are up at that spinal tap 11, because as a reader, they're so powerful. Yeah. I, in both cases, often had to just step away for a little bit to, you know, what is it like to be in, inside that and trying to write it? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, for me, um, the hardest part was doing the research and, and coming to the uh, material as a, as a grown-up. You know, I, I understand uh, as a 40-something what the, gravi the gravity of slavery as I, something different than, say, an eight-year-old watching Roots. And before I, I started playing around with history and moving things around and bringing the fantastic elements, I wanted to get it straight, which means uh, having a very brutal version of plantation, plantation life because it was brutal. And so um, realizing before I started writing that I'd have to put my characters through so much, um, realizing that um, I wanted to testify for my ancestors who went through it as, as much as I could. Um, that was sort of terrifying. Once I started writing, the narrative voice you know, was a good sort of distancing tool. Um, but it was very hard to sort of realize what I'd have to put on the page before I did it. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a ferocious history, um, and it's and it's a his history that absolutely remains with us. And I was I was thinking today, my uh, my wife and and uh, daughter are in Colorado watching the the solar eclipse, which apparently we didn't get to see here. Um, and but just thinking of that that sort of that question of optics and and how you look at that thing. Um, and that, that draw always to look at it directly, um, but it will, burn your, it will burn your eyes, right, if, if you look at it for too long. So you, you glance at it, and I found myself um, needing, though, to look at it directly and not, not to look away. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, and, you know, to, to, so for me it was a, a question, you know, the, the research um, and the writing, which always go hand in hand for me, uh, were very much about learning more about this um, dispensation that is the, this, this American dream and, and mystery uh, in, in many ways. I mean, it obviously takes a huge amount of skill and professional confidence to be able to confront subject matter like this. And I can sort of understand why it's six and seven novels in before you do that. But how much was the writing of these books now tied to the particular political moment of the US right now? Uh, you know, for me, not so much. I mean, the, the book came out last August, and so the political context was Black Lives Matter for interviewers, and so they'd say, how much did Black Lives Matter influence the book? And for me, not at all. Um, we have a conversation about police brutality that erupts every couple of years and then dies away, and that's in the future of my life as a black American. Um, so uh, it might have been news to some people that we have a terrible police brutality pr problem uh, in the States. It wasn't, new to me. it wasn't news to me. Um, after the election, I had to sort of grapple with the fact that I did see a strong white supremacist government or philosophy in America as something I was writing about in the past. And of course, it uh, had reemerged again with the election of Donald Trump. And so, um, uh, through the, an accident of publica publication, my point of view of my situate, my, how I situate the book has changed. Mm. Uh, but, um, the writing of it and the conception of it was very separate from the news. But did you feel a kind of sense of political imperative that you have to write this book in a way? Is it something that you always... No, I mean, I felt that it was, it was time <coughs> to write Excuse it, me. and that was like my sort of imperative. Um, before the election, I was going to write a nice crime novel to follow up this, <laughs> this depressing nice story. <laughs> and then uh, after the election, I was like, oh, maybe I should do that other book that does sort of confront institutional racism, and that's my way of dealing with what's in the news. So. So the next book is uh, um, uh, being kickstarted by what's what's going on, but I wouldn't say that about this book. Right, mm. Laird. Yeah, and and certainly, um, 
again, you're sort of giving, having given that context, for me, there's a, there's a sort of trajectory within these, these connected novels, um, not connected by character, but thematically connected, connected by uh, concern. And the adventure started for me when I was reading The Known World by Edward P. Jones. And on page 22 of that novel, um, character mentions in passing this anecdote. Um, and it's never mentioned again. And that anecdote became the core of this first novel. And so for me, it was a kind of literary encounter um, and wanting to explore this thing that had been evoked in a book that had moved me um, greatly. Um, and, and so that sort of was, was the mover. And certainly, I was, you know, one lives in America, one is aware of these things. And so that they um, were, were uh, impacting um, on the writing of the books. But it, that, that isn't how it started with this sense of, I need to address this. It, it didn't work that way. Um, and I still don't have that sense of, I need to address this. I'm not sure I am the person to address this. Um, but I'm uh, sort of desperate and obsessed with looking at American history and trying to look at it um, as, uh, from as many points of view as possible and yeah. not simply my own. In terms of being the person to address this, how much have you been affected or been drawn into discussions around cultural appropriation and things mm -hmm. and about the right, the authorial right and that, that sort of thing? Was that more or less difficult to write this particular story in the midst of all that foment? You know, it, it was, I, I think before things have, have flared up in this most recent um, iteration of the, of the conversation that also is, is, is cyclical and, and um, as, and as far as I'm concerned, has tremendous merit. Um, but, you know, I, so I, I wrote this book and, and sort of brought it, put it to bed in, in, in a way before uh, Donald Trump was elected and seemed to really reignite things in a way. Um, but, you know, the, the, the response has been extraordinarily generous from, from everyone, um, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And so that's sort of, I feel like I've, I've been met with, with generosity around, mm. around these efforts of, of mine to, to look at some of these questions. Mm. Um, and. So, you know, I, the next book I isn't taking on quite the same things, but there's, there are some things that, are, that overlap, um, mm. and I will, I'm going to continue obstinately for a little bit longer. Yeah. Anyway. It's a question that provokes quite a lot of anxiety, though, and I, myself, you know, in kind of researching and thinking about how to approach this conversation, it's, it's a difficult one. And I wrote to you, Colson, to ask where you kind of sat on the cultural appropriation thing, and his response was hysterical. Can you just well, I feel very like strongly that if you use your empathy and intelligence, you can write anything. And if you fuck it up, do better next time. So <laughs> That's uh, exactly what he said, one line. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's your job to inhabit different people, uh, tell different stories, and that means transcending your cultural origins and biases. I think that's the point of being an artist, uh, to step outside yourself and uh, look at the world through different kinds of per uh, perceptual lenses. So for me, that's part of the job. And also, and then if you, someone calls you out and says, actually, your black main character is, is a racist caricature, do better next time. It's a failure of the imagination. Yes, yeah, yeah, your empathy and intelligence failed you. Right. <laughs> There's a, such important stuff in both of these novels about power. And one of the things that comes up really early in yours, Laird, is the way that the relationship between Otty Lee and who's the first kind of character to na narrate the story and this really weird dynamic between her and her boss. Um, so. I mean, there's a sort of sense also of that the reader becomes drawn into that. Can you talk about complicity in the book and where the kind of reader ends up in relation to the events that mm. are being told? Yeah, I, I think you know it, it hasn't it hasn't really been deliberate, and I, 
I wasn't thinking of it particularly in those terms, but I think there is this sense of being drawn into the minds of these characters, and one does that. These are first-person narrations, and um, with, with complex, hopefully, certainly flawed individuals. Um, and, you know, in the case of Adi Lee, the first, the first narrator, this is someone who is willingly going to attend a lynching of these other human beings. Uh, and so she's, she's pretty flawed, and the people she is surrounded by are, are flawed uh, and um, reprehensible, right? Uh, and yet there is the texture of that that I'm interested in, um, and the texture of these, this, you know, this reprehensible thing that these characters are doing, uh, which after all um, has, has, has been done many times. Um, and it's not as though I, I think that a reader is going to, you know, I, I am Audie Lee, and I certainly don't say that, I, you know, about myself. Um, Madame Bovary is me, Audie Lee is me. Not, it, it's not that sort of thing. But I certainly think that there are things that will hit little bells along the way for, for people in certain situations, right? Um, when we, we step this way instead of stepping that way. Uh, and uh, it's something that I'm, I'm endlessly interested in exploring, and this question of complicity is a, is a huge one. Um, uh, and I address it by looking, trying to look carefully at human beings in, in situations of, of uh, stress and, and uh, moral, uh, moral failure often. Um, and uh, in, in the case of this book, it's not meant to be, uh, here's the one who's screwing up and here's the one who's doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, there's no false equivalency between these two narr narratives, but there is nonetheless a kind of collision that occurs along the way between the two, the two one who's going and one who's leaving. Um, and that space in between is, is, seems to me where a lot of us live, um, that, that in-between space. Mm -hmm. Jump in at any time, Colson, if you, I don't know if you wanted to ask Louis something. No, I didn't have that, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of power though, like the character of Cora in your novel, like she's viewed the entire time, she's property of someone else or she's kind of escaping or, but always obviously to herself, she isn't property, she's a person. And how difficult was it or what were the challenges of kind of remaining true to her when often she's, you know, you're, you're writing as she is perceived by others? Sure, I mean, uh, a slave is a piece of property, not a human being under the law, but of course slaves were human beings. And once she leaves the plantation, uh, part of the story is her going north to freedom and encountering different ideas of freedom. And part of it is becoming a person. And I'm trying to find different arenas in South Carolina, North Carolina, where she can uh, gain agency over herself and the world. And that's uh, learning how to read. It's um, uh, all these different characters she encounters that enlarge her, her notion of herself. Um, but obviously, if you write about slavery, you write about power. If you write about imperialism and um, uh, the forging of America, you're talking about uh, theft of land from Native Americans, uh, manifest destiny. And so anytime you're talking about slavery, you're talking about power. And if you're talking about American history, you're talking about power, uh, those who have it and those who you're taken away from. It's funny talking to you in these kind of terms that are quite kind of, um, we're talking in a, a fairly kind of detached way about the, the, the themes and the constructs and things, but like I can't stress how much both of these books affected me on a really deep emotional level as well. They're really, really powerful and the stories I think are ones that absolutely need, <laughs> need to be told. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that in the context of, you know, a kind of more detached conversation about it. I want you both to know that. No, I think I'm it's glad. important. I mean, yeah. for me, uh, this book started with, I had a, the idea many years ago when I was 
in a what-if phase, as I call it. So my first couple novels started with, what if I updated this industrial age myth of John Henry for the information age, and that was John Henry days. And so I started with these questions I wanted to solve my first couple of books, and then with Sag Harbor, I started with characters in a situation first, and I feel that this book, you know, going back to what you're saying about how this book is different, mm. I am sort of melding these two different phases of my career where I had this intellectual idea or this proposition, and then I also have a very strong character um, who's anchoring things. And so, you know, I'm, I'm glad I waited. I'm, I'm glad that I had yeah. written my last couple of books so I could apply some of the different ways of dealing with character to bear on this, um, uh, what can be an intellectual sort of premise. Yeah. The last time that we met, when I interviewed you, was in Ubud in Bali, because this is a terrible job. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? <laughs> <laughs> and you said then it was just after Zone 1 came out, which is about zombies. And we um, remember you saying at that point that you were al almost envious of the way that film directors get to make a whole load of different films that are looking at different genres all the time, and if they don't do that, they're almost kind of accused of being static. Whereas a novelist is expected to retain a certain consistency of style so that they can build an oeuvre, almost. Do you still kind of hold to that? And where do you go from here? If well, I, I think for me, you know, uh, uh, two artists I liked at a very young age were David Bowie and Stanley Kubrick. And so David Bowie adopted different personas from record to record, and that seemed a way of being an artist. And Stanley Kubrick, does a horror, a horror movie, he does a comedy, he does science fiction, a war movie. Um, and so if you like all these different kinds of stories, I think as an artist you want to figure out what you like about these different genres, how can you uh, add to them, what do you want to leave out. And so it always seemed like a very uh, natural way of, of being an artist, you know, trying this kind of story and then starting from scratch uh, again with the next one. Hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, that's making me think the question about films, et cetera, and something, and, and maybe getting back to this question of um, that um, you know, sort of being willing to go into to, to space of, of intensity, et cetera, and, um, and who, who should do it, who, and et cetera. And so the, uh, the f uh, filmmaker Barry Jenkins, who's adapting Underground Railroad, um, which is very, ex very, very exciting, the director of, of Moonlight, um, was asked by the Financial Times, I think it was, um, if uh, as a straight person he worried about being the right person to tell this story, which is about mm. a young uh, gay man, sort of coming of age story. Um, and he said something that was very important to me when I was thinking about this. Um, and I'll paraphrase, I, won't, I don't have it exactly. Uh, but he said that if I looked at this story, at this script, and then um, the Financial Times interviewer says that he, he, he sort of made a, a pounding of the heart right, um, looked at this thing and felt his heart pound, and then he had looked away, then he would have been a coward. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been sort of useful for me in thinking about at those moments, right, because one does have those moments of, of with anything, with, you know, wh whatever novel it is you've set out to write, you know, should I be doing this? Should I abandon? Should I jump ship? Um, and, but then returning to something that's along those lines for me has been very useful, so that articulated, um, what it is I, I'm, I'm hoping or you know trying to do. Uh, so you're always trying to write the book that scares you shitless, almost. Oh, it's, it's yeah, it's it's almost a disease with me. <laughs> well, I want to open it up for audience questions, but one thing I wanted to ask you: one of the lovely things about a festival like this is that you 
participate in a kind of longer term conversation over the couple of weeks if you have the luxury of living here and being able to go to lots and lots of things. And Zadie Smith said something the other day that really kind of just struck me as something I hadn't really, that just seemed so opposite almost to the times that we're in. She said that one of the characters, I don't know if you're familiar with her novel Swing Time, but she's I'm ready, I'm promoting ready. just now. Um, but she says this character who is a really interesting kind of, not feckless is the wrong word, but she's somebody who kind of lacks direction. And she was talking about that character and how when she was writing her, she was exploring the idea that seems contrary to kind of our thinking right now, that you're actually, you don't, like we're all becoming obsessed with this idea that we have a kind of essential pers personality or personhood and if we can only just define it and maybe that's in relation or indifference to other people then we'll find out who we really are and she was sort of saying that actually her character this particular character is exploring a, a, a belief of hers that we're much more than that we're shaped by our experiences and by what happens to us and where we find ourselves and our learning and it's not about who you know what that essential person who does but it's much more environmental in a way what do you think of that and how does that relate to the way that you what do you think young man <laughs> <laughs> well young man <laughs> well after she said that i had to really think that through and uh, and then i related it back to the character in swing time and i can totally see what she's yeah. doing but it was like something that just gave me a bit of pause I have, I have a I maybe have totally misunderstood her, although that is entirely yeah, possible. And I'm probably totally misunderstanding you right now, <laughs> and, um, su such, as, such as life. Um, I have a very uh, weird split trajectory, so I, I respond a lot to this notion of, of, of circumstance and, and how, it, how it forms you. Um, I, I was born in Singapore, I lived in London, I lived in the Netherlands, um, and then at a certain point I was shipped to this farm in, in rural Indiana, so I went right from London to rural Indiana in a, in a school surrounded by cornfields um, and my uh, all my early novels are I should say most of my early novels are set in cities fantastical versions of cities um, near New York's uh, near Paris's that sort of thing um, and then there is this other side that is trying to attend to what happened on that farm in Indiana mm. um, and so it seems like um, both those things are, are inhabiting what I'm doing uh, and so there's um, I, I certainly seem to be easily moldable right <laughs> and when you're finding a character do you feel that they do they come to you fully formed or do they grow in the course of the novel as events kind of take place around them they think they're fully formed but right. they're not <laughs> quite yet <laughs> I, I guess for me I think people are very mutable and I think we I think there's a five-year-old me and a ten-year-old me, and you know I think we're all different people, uh, and we, we change over time. Uh, in terms of characters and how I make them up, usually I, I do a lot of plotting before I start six months or, or a year, and I know what they have to do in the book or most of the things. I, I know what the ending is and the beginning and the middle can, middle can change, and of course you start writing and things change. Uh, but I don't know how they walk and talk until they first appear, and so. Um, Hopefully, and sometimes they're supposed to appear because it's the beginning of the book, and I don't know who they are, so I, I keep going and deal with other characters, and I'll figure out six months later. Um, but once I, I find a way into them, then I, I think they're pretty consistent, and they're acting. I find a key moment or something about how I describe them in that first scene that uh, is a map of who they are, and then you're sort of using that, uh, that moment to guide you from different conversations and, and, and scenes, and so um, I'm not sure, uh, so I guess I, uh, I, may, I may get be stuck on who they are, but then hope then once they click, 
you know, generally they stay in place, and right. I know who, I know how they, I know what makes them tick. And for Cora, it's there's two moments at the beginning of the book where she stands up to the bully and protects her guard, protects the boy Chester from being beaten. Um, I can't really conceive of what the kind of courage it would take to run away from the plantation, uh, uh, to have only no, assisted in this plantation hell, and take that leap of imagination and faith to leave. And so find those two mo those key character moments were useful for me, who grew up in middle-class luxury uh, in the 21st century, 20th century, 21st century, to define our characters. So once I had those two moments, you know, uh, that was the sort of hard, hard part. All right, well, I'm sure the audience have lots of questions. We may have stunned them into silence. No, there's a couple of you. Okay, if you can keep your questions pretty short and do try and keep the questions because we've already got quite a few hands up. Thank you. Hi. Um, when I was thinking about the similarities between your work, uh, I, I, was, I was thinking particularly about travel in space and the use of space in both of your novels because especially the ways in which external space can become internal space in both of your novels, not least your railway stations and so on, and your, the ladies' landscapes at the end of your novel. So space and space travel is my question. Uh, Could you be more specific? <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a moment in, uh, that I was just looking at then where, in, uh, where, where Cora, in the second railroad, sees that begins to show the shape of the walls around in the station but also see the blood seeping through the pattern of the concrete and the gro groining of the of the tiles and it becomes an exploration of her own past life and mentality so an interior space that's something about self-exploration and not about physical space exploration. Right, well, well you know, for me, uh, you know, the book's called The Underground Railroad, and I think if I'd written it 10 years ago, I would have shown the, how they built the tunnels and who these, who's the engineer, how they make the right-of-way. Ventilation is obviously a big, big problem. <laughs> um, and for me, the, you know, the railroad, <coughs> except for her final trip, is really a portal. I'm getting her from arena to arena. And so, um, and so there is that... Uh, uh, there's so much unexplored fantasy space in the book, which is the tunnel which obviously is very important, but I, I never go there, because for me, it's really about, again, that interior journey and her character. And so the, the one time where I, she does spend more time in the tunnel moving through it, uh, it's the last ride, and she's going through you know, to her final uh, exit. Um, it, it is very interior, and it's much more about her internal journey as opposed to what's uh, visible through the windows, which of course is nothing, because it's underground. Mm. Yeah. Should we take another question? You could yeah. sure, yeah. I'm here, and then the lady in the class. Thank you. Um, Colson, I'm from Tennessee, uh, so I was one of those kids who grew up uh, questioning, oh, great, an underground railroad. Um, but we didn't have a subway, so I never imagined the stations. But I wish I had this book as a teenager, and for me, one of the most important aspects of the book was the focus of a woman's story in slavery and, and during this time, which I I tried to think of the stories that I learned as a child and I never got that story. And not just a woman, um, but also a strong woman and the complexities of her relationships, uh, her own identity and her relationship with her mom and her relationship with the queer woman that hides her. And it was just really exciting to read about a woman in this time. And so was that a conscious decision 
to say, I want to tell this story from a woman's perspective because I don't see it a lot, or was that just what came to you? No, you know, th thanks so much for reading. Uh, not because I, I hadn't seen it a lot, but because I hadn't done it before. You know, can a white person write about black people? Can a, a guy write about women? I think it's part of your job as an artist. And so, uh, really, the thought process for why I chose a female protagonist was uh, one of the earliest slave narratives I read in college uh, was by Harriet Jacobs, who spent seven years in an attic before she could get passage out. And obviously, I sort of pay homage to that in the North Carolina section. But she writes about how when a slave girl becomes a slave woman, she enters into a, a more, a different, more terrible form of slavery. You're, you're now prey to your master's desires, if you weren't before. You're supposed to pump out kids, because kids mean more money, pick more cotton. And so it's just a different uh, aspect of slavery than uh, befalls men, and that seemed worthy of exploring. I hadn't done the mother-daughter dynamic before, so that seemed worthy of doing, just to grow as an artist. And then I had a string of three meditative male narrators in a row, and so the voice in the back of my head was like, mix it up, Colson, don't do the same <laughs> shit every time. And so, so I decided very early, um, I guess over the years, I toyed with a male narrator, a guy looking for his wife who'd been sold off, and then when I finally decided to do it, I decided on a female protagonist for all these different reasons. Thanks for that, Christian. There's a lady here in the gray. Great. <laughs> well, we'll move on then. Unless, yeah, okay. <laughs> Thank you. So maybe the lady here, and then we'll take some from this side of the room. Could you put your hand up? Hi, I had uh, two very quick questions, although the second one was partially answered. I'm, um, uh, Laird, you're uh, reading of the, the beginning of the lynching in Indiana reminds me a lot of um, a short story by Ralph Ellison called A Party Down at the Square. Mm. I don't know if you, either of you have read that. It was written in 1921, and it's, it's a really searing, gruesome um, depiction of a lynching in Alabama, but it's told through the eyes of an outsider, also a boy who's who, a white 10-year-old boy who's visiting from his uncle, who's the sheriff of the town and is kind of running the lynching. He's visiting him from the north. And I just wondered if either of you had read that. And that was, it was written in 1929. Yeah, Ellison um, was really useful to me in thinking about this book. And then the other question is, why did you choose female protagonists? So. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Tick. Um, you know, something that comes to mind, and maybe it speaks to the earlier question from over here as well, is... Um, so this question of space and, and who's in it and who is, um, uh, who's affected by the circumstance and, and the space that's being proposed in the novel. Uh, and right after the, that scene, um, uh, th there's, a, there's a tricky thing that occurs because the character doesn't actually, she isn't, she's obviously not there for the lynching that happens a couple of hours later. She cannot be there, right? She physically can't be there. Um, and uh, as she says, things are about to, I think things are gonna get ugly here, and they, they do indeed. But what she does is she imagines her way into this space uh, where uh, the, the jail down the street where these young men are being held and the, that the mob is, is growing ever, ever stronger around. And so even if her physical self can't go there, she, um, uh, her, her mind does, and what she's heard about it afterwards, and also what she's imagined about it afterwards. Uh, and to try and think about what she might imagine, I went and visited the jail that still stands there uh, and has now been, and thinking of this question of space, um, and has now been turned, it was turned in the 1980s into rather seedy condos, 
Um, so this is a former jail that looks like this strange castle with gargoyles in this little town in Indiana that is condominiums and now 30 years later um, has uh, run, run a bit to seed. And I found a way in um, and the bars are still in place uh, and the flooring is still in place. Um, and thinking about how then my mind could help her mind in that moment, think about what, what occurred. Um, and I'm not sure that I would have been able to think it in the same way. I'm sure I wouldn't have been able to think it in the same way if it had been a, a, a male perspective on that night or a different perspective, say a white person um, in, at, at that moment. It would have all been different. Okay, we had a couple of questions here. I think, oh, we've got the mic there. For, for, for Colson, I, I wanted to thank you for the Valentine's Farm scene in, in your novel, the, the one you read from just now. It's, it's one of those great moments that some great fiction needs of respite, a haven for both the reader and, and your characters. Um, I'm interested whether the Valentine's Farm, this sort of utopia of communal living, whether that had a basis in history. And, and, and also, maybe this is a harder question, whether you, with Elijah Lander, believe that the scars of slavery never can heal. Thank you. Sure. Uh, uh, Valentine Farm models, I, I, did, I was just drawing from general communes and utopian societies and uh, things are really great and then they always fall apart. <laughs> so uh, <coughs> since the book has come out, uh, and I knew about black, various black towns and I've written about them before, um, but I guess, I guess in Michigan there were, uh, there were one or two places that very much, very, very much like Valentine Farm. I, I wasn't drawing from them, but uh, I guess that impulse you know, existed. And various places. Um, in terms of what do I think about the scars of slavery, I think we make very, 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 very slow progress uh, as people, uh, as a society. And so um, I guess theoretically, 500 years from now, <laughs> maybe the scars of slavery will have faded. Um, in, in my book, Zone One, uh, it sort of revealed, well, anyway, one of the main characters is African American, but no one ever talks about it. And so I've been asked about that. And I guess my idea was that the apocalypse, apocalypse has happened in zone one and everyone's dead. And, and that's when we'll have a post-racial society. Uh, when 99.9% .9 of the population is gone, <laughs> is what I was sort of saying in that book. Um, but as a parent, I have to hope that things are getting better for my children and definitely my grandparents and parents uh, couldn't, couldn't conceive of how things have and haven't changed. Uh, I could never conceive of Obama. So obviously we, we, do, we make a little bit of progress, but it is very slow and we backslide sometimes. Do you watch Game of Thrones? I do, yeah. So it's kind of like the White Walkers, that's the only thing that will unite us all is an, uh, another, another enemy. <laughs> no, or, or the Watchmen, the Watchmen right. theory. Um, <coughs> yeah, no, we're, we're terrible human beings generally. And, and that's yeah. the end. Yeah, so. <laughs> Thank you. There was a question here in the second row, I think. Is that no. no, it was asked and answered. Great, thank you. Hi there. Uh, I, I, um, I live in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, um, but I lived in Charlottesville, Virginia from 2012 to 2015. And the question is related to your research. It, it's, it's really about, you know, at, at the moment as, as we relate to the events of last week, um, we have the, the point of view of the press, we have the point of view of a statesman, we have multiple opinions and social media. We don't yet have a Billy Holiday, um, and we have our, our, in some cases, common sense. Um, but as you were looking at the at the research for for each of your projects, um, what did you weigh the heaviest 
And are we weighing the wrong things now? And in future, what should we be weighing now so that when we look back in the future, that will be the thing? Mm, yeah, sure. Um, so in terms of, of what I weighed, uh, uh, what was most important to me in my, in my research and, and across these, these historical novels were pri primary sources of people speaking. So um, in, you know, in the case of uh, the, the Civil War soldier who disguises himself and goes to, goes to war and fights as, as a man, um, I looked at uh, women who had done that, who had left behind records um, of, of having done that, uh, and reading the accounts of common soldiers, um, and uh, reading uh, in the case of uh, The Evening Road, the memoir of James Cameron, uh, who uh, was the third person who was supposed to be lynched that night uh, and was not. The crowd's fury was, uh, uh, for whatever reason, he thinks it was divine intervention, uh, but uh, the, the mob uh, comes apart uh, at a certain juncture and he is spared and uh, sent to jail, again, with no, no, no uh, legal proceedings, etc. cetera. Uh, but he, so he left behind a record. Um, and, and maybe it loops back around to this notion of what should we be looking at now? I'm not sure we have it yet. Right? We don't quite have it. Um, although a friend of mine, the novelist Hideo Furukawa, who is from Fukushima uh, Prefecture and uh, w was much affected by the tsunami and his family and of course so many friends, um, uh, he and I had a discussion about uh, how, whether one should just start immediately. And for him, he began writing even as the news reports were coming in, even as he was trying to find out if friends and family had, had survived, etc. Um, and I had been thinking that one needs a bit of time. So thinking post 9-11, I, I was in New York then, um, and a number of books came out quite quickly. And you know, to my mind, without having had that conversation with Hideo, it seemed like perhaps they were a bit premature. Uh, but now I'm rethinking that. And so maybe there is a way to be writing right now about this thing. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what we should be looking at now or where we're going. Um, uh, definitely, when, I, when I, I'm writing a book, I'm writing for myself, and then sometimes people come along for the ride, or sometimes they don't, uh, depending on how you tell the story. Um, so there's no sort of hiring about what we should do as a society to address you know, these deep-seated, this deep-seated darkness. Um, uh, in terms of what I weighed heavily in the research, it was the first person accounts of, of former slaves. Um, I started reading an overview of the Underground Railroad called Bound for Canaan, came out, came out about eight years ago, and that equated me with Methodists and the general history, but of course I only, I depart from that a lot in the book, so. Um, and then going back to slave narratives I read in college, Harriet Jacobs, Frederick Douglass, and then in the 1930s, the US government, uh, Great Depression, uh, hired writers, trying to put writers back to work, hired people to interview former slaves about slavery, capture their oral histories before they died. And so <coughs> there are hundred, hundreds of them. Some are two paragraphs long, some are 10 pages, some are about farming, some are about master-slave relationships. And they really uh, gave me an overview of slavery, uh, concrete details that you can't really get in a history book. Um, I remember early on reading about how one person saying, you know, once a year our master would give us wooden shoes. And so I think, like, what, you know? So who's the carpenter? Uh, is he, does he make chairs all year and then one, one week out of the year has this huge order from the plantation? Who is this guy? And so all those, so, so 
the throwaway lines in these oral narratives, you know, sent me down different avenues. And then I talked about sort of the, the flat voice of uh, having reality and fantasy and using the same voice for both and not really having a distinction. There's a lot of violence in the book, and it's told in a very matter-of-fact way, and that comes from the slaves themselves. You know, looking back over how they were treated 30, 60 years ago, 60 years before, they would tell the most horrible story uh, with a great remove, um, because it had happened so long ago. And so you'd go from, and th then my mother was beaten to death, and I started working the fields the next day. And there's so much in those two lines, and it's so, and it's not, it doesn't have to be dramatized. What actually happened speaks for itself. And so I, I borrowed that, their language, or their way of telling the brutal, describing the brutalities of the plantation for my narrator. I read somewhere too that you had looked into, there was um, a lot of the posters, the wanted posters for people who, slaves who'd escaped too. That is fascinating, just the, the kind of distance and the objective and the, the single words that people were described by too. Yeah, I mean, you know, as a fiction writer, I like doing different voices, but I couldn't really compete with the runaway slave ads. And so, so there was a guy at the newspaper and that was his job to counsel slave masters on how to make a really efficient ad for uh, putting a reward for their slave. And so, you know, reward for my slave Patty, who ran away for no reason whatsoever, um, has a scar on her arm from a burn, how'd you get the scar? You know, so uh, I couldn't really compete with this newspaper men's uh, classified ad language. And so another thing that came out in the research was just how you sort of know it, but just how pervasive and all-encompassing the system was. It was a mm. newspaper. It was the blacksmith who made the chains, obviously, but also the wheel rims for the, for the new wagons that brought the cotton to the market in these new towns sprouting up, the nails for the houses sprouting up along the cotton routes. We're almost out of time, but I have time probably for one more, if you can be succinct about it, unless we're done. Well, let's leave it. The, oh, no, no. Sneak to an Almost. <laughs> Sorry, this is a bit of a jump, but uh, in modern-day South Africa, they're going through proper processes of reform and re reparations, attempting to return land and stuff. Uh, in either of your works, Diana, have you followed the South African situation, and would you, uh, is there anything that you think you might learn there from what you've actually studied for, for these books? For me, um, uh, I haven't, you know, except... Uh, things about the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. I guess in terms of reparations, uh, I started writing as a freelance writer, so I never expect to get paid or on time. So that <laughs> informs my notion of reparations. <laughs> I, I, worked, I worked at the UN for five years um, as, a, as a press officer, and, and so spent a lot of time um, covering uh, the, the outcomes of truth and reconciliation processes. And um, uh, had one of the great glories of my time there was coming up the escalator uh, to the office, and uh, which was our office was right outside the Security Council. You go by the Guernica Tapestry, um, and there was the, there was a big crowd. Um, and uh, being a press officer and in-house, I was able to push my way to the front and got to see uh, Nelson Mandela coming out on the arm of, of Kofi Annan. Uh, and it was extraordinary. So he was being the peace facilitator uh, for the, what was going on in Burundi at the time. Uh, and it was in his later years 
years, and when he came out to the microphone, he was really absolutely bent over and on the arm of, of, of Kofi Annan. And when he got to the microphone, he just, he rose, he rose up, and there was this sense of a tremendous vigor and force, and he spoke uh, about these different things. Um, and I go into this anecdote to say that, um, and, and this sense of uh, my own trajectory, the, the, the United Nations and my experience there, um, all of my novels think about this truth and reconciliation process. In other words, where the, the victims and the victimizers sit sometimes side by side and speak their story. Um, sometimes they can't be in the same place, obviously. Uh, but there is this sense that the process contains these different voices. Uh, and uh, out of that voicing of why one did it, perhaps, and what happened to one when that thing was done to them, something happens, something starts, starts to happen. That was my sense of reading these outcome documents and, and um, uh, interacting, in some cases, with people who had been through that process. So um, absolutely, hugely important to me. A great answer. Thank you. We will have to leave it there, but I strongly recommend that if you have not yet, um, you get yourselves a copy of The Underground Railroad and The Evening Road and all the extensive back catalogue of both of these amazing writers. Thank you so much, both Laird Hunt Thank and you guys. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for EdBookFest. The next book festival is on from the 11th to the 27th of August 2018.